Hey everybody, I'm Micah Rich, founder of the League of Movable Type, and this is the Weekly Typographic, a podcast where we discuss our favorite type and design news from the week. Hello, Micah. Hi, my friend. How you doing? I'm doing well. There's lots of rain in Georgia. It's been raining nonstop for three days, and we got more coming for the rest of the week. Oh, that's beautiful. I love rain. Do you? Yeah, I do. It's, it's a little bit gray and gross here today, too. Sometimes it's nice as some variation, right? Have a day where it's a little bit lower key. It's kind of like your high energy all the time. It's too much, right? Like you need a little you mix it up. Do a little hot chocolate with a blanket and kind of look yeah. out the window. I unfortunately am hot in 60 degree weather. Hot chocolate is strictly for the winter time for me. Fair enough. Fair enough. Well, Micah, we got ourselves five articles to talk about today. We do. I do want to do a nice little plug because for the members who get extra goodies in the email every week, we found some very cool ones, including one from our partner site that we've worked with on other stuff, Animography. If you don't know them, they do like motion type. They specialize in making basically like animated fonts, which is cool. Anyway, I'm pretty excited about the couple that we found. So yeah, I want to plug that. Exciting. Well, Micah, our first article is the four levels of grids. Web Designers by Christopher Butler. Want to talk about that? I was excited when I found this one because our wonderful and super helpful intern, Karina, who is a former student of yours. I know, my former student. Very fun. Yeah, she's been killing it, helping with all the league stuff the last couple of months. Grids is one of the things that she has said she wants to learn more about. And that kind of put me on a little bit of a mission to try to find something that was both easy to digest, but also helpful This article had a lot of beautiful visuals that really explained a lot of stuff and kind of fit with my perspective, which is grids are just a tool, a means to get to some kind of consistency in the design, guide you through the design in a consistent way. And all four of these examples here illustrate that point more than Like what I learned in school is pick a grid system and stick directly to that grid system because the grid system is truth. The grid is the law. Yeah, like a law. Whereas this is showing why you want to align in a certain way or have spacing in a certain way, which I think we talked about last week. Yes, we did. We had the discussion about it. The basic problem we were talking about was that you don't know what kind of assets you're dealing with. Well, right. if your image is a certain aspect ratio and your text is a certain length and blah, 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 your pretty little grid system isn't going to work. looks great when it's all much gray squares of templates and prototypes. And then you start putting the assets in, not going to work out so well. But what did you think? I thought that was broken down very nicely from basic to craft. I like the framing on that. Like that was quite mm-hmm. nice. Of alignments, spacing, columns, and vertical spacing, which is fun because... I was getting confused about, is it horizontal spacing or is it vertical spacing? Oh, that's fair. That's like left and right. People struggle with that. Yeah. But I think that Christopher comments at the end that alignment is the most basic kind, most straightforward. And like 80% of the work is in that basic alignment. And then the idea of spaces between the objects horizontally in the way he's talking about it and columns of subdivision. You can use a basic 12 column system generically, but you're not required to. And in theory, you can keep subdividing columns forever if you wanted to. I think practically, I usually advise students to subdivide it by the smallest unit, which tends to be type, which is why type seems to get discussed a lot in the discussions of grid systems, because type is usually the smallest element. Not always the case, 
attends the date. So thus, it's useful for that. That's interesting. So you're saying if like your base font size is 16, it might make sense to have a 16 column grid. I don't know if I make a 16 size, but maybe 32, maybe some multiple of it. That's interesting. And 12 column grid has been a de facto standard for a long time for people who are designing for the web. And I think that comes from 10 or 15 years ago, 12 pixels was a base size for designing for the web at some point our usage of computers has changed and so like it's gone up to 16 but i don't know that anybody's ever described that of why 12 column grids on the web is such a standard yeah also the grid systems by Mueller brockman talks a lot about that so coming from the print tradition that kind of discussion of a 12 column system comes from there too and by the way i answered your question about if your font size is 16 point I actually want to caveat that a little stronger claim. It's not even the font size. It would be at, to be really technical, it would be like the stem size. So if this really is more applicable to a headline to discuss this, mm. in the sense that if your headlines, your stem unit is 20 point or 20 pixels, you would use a multiple against that to line it up. That requires a little precision that's usually not available in web design projects yeah, or, or even just typesetting generally, unless you're working like posters. This is also usually where it comes up to, like a poster where you're working a very large size font. Which that's also why I appreciate the simplicity and nature of this article being a little bit less strict than how we were taught in school with print grids, Mm -hmm. because it's just not available. Like CSS grid as a concept is new in the last few years. Before that, it was very difficult to even have vertical columns on a page to design to. It was like a, it was a friendly suggestion. Maybe you get right. it. Although you had the old school table days. I remember that. Sure, that is true. In most of my career, tables faded in the early 2000s. I know. And then grid didn't come about until freaking, I don't know, 2018 or something. I don't know exactly. It doesn't matter. But... In the meantime, it was a suggestion. I remember many websites in my early days as a designer when I was taught in school how precise grids had to be. And so there were a bunch of CSS hacks to draw a pixel and overlay it on the screen so that it was simulating a design software so that you could visually line it up. And then suddenly you change the browser size and everything would break and you have to do it again. Yeah. Which Which is still true for like vertical alignment, like baseline grids in CSS don't exist. There have been some improvements in vertical alignment, especially with things like Flexbox or CSS grid. But even that, it's very imprecise and you can't line up the top of an image to the top of a paragraph automatically. That's not a thing still. Which does lead to the fourth level of grid, which is the vertical spacing in the craft. As you're saying, it sounds like that's still an area that requires a finessing of right. a designer. And I think similar to how we were talking last week, it turns into less of a grid system and more a pattern of how you're using spacing yes. of saying, oh, I'm going to add this much margin. And then similar to that type scale that we were talking about last week, you pick a system of how much spacing you want to give it. Well said. Hmm. Micah, shall we move on to our next article? This yeah, let's. 
Yes. This one is recraft, generate vector art, 3D images, and more. Basically prompt to image, as we discussed last time, right? Now we got, as we said, basically we're just waiting for vector versions. Guess what? It came <laughs> a week later. Sort of, with some caveats. I'm being Have cute you about played it. with I'm it? I'm cute, but still. Yeah. So Michael, yeah. what are your thoughts on this? I needed to mess around with it just to see. And A, it's cool. It's interesting. It's fun. A lot of prompt image generation stuff. It's such a crapshoot where you're like, I'm going to type this in and see what happens. And then you're like, oh, that's not quite what I was hoping for. I didn't realize I wasn't being specific enough. Let me try to be more specific. And then something goes way off and you're like, oh, that's left field. What? And so I did that and accidentally ended up with some interesting results. And then I hit the vectorize button, which is the point of this particular tool, and was fairly disappointed by the vectorization. (laughs) Yeah, how was I was that's what I was curious about. It's like, how is this vectorizing going to go? I doubt those points are really orthogonal and really efficient. Air quotes as the advertise on their website. Right? How bad was it for the audience to know? Oh, I wouldn't use it. (laughs) Nice. Fair enough. I definitely appreciate I don't want to knock them and say, oh, it's such a bad tool. What the heck? But I don't think you're going to get anything super usable out of it yet. I think it's a thing to keep an eye on. And it's certainly a fun thing to play with. But I got a couple interesting. I was trying to make like Mac OS icons. And I like made a couple interesting ones. And I love the way that they have trained this model to come up with these particular types you can pick a different style like vector art and illustration or like a flat icon or a 3d illustration and it's interesting that they've trained them on those styles and those are pretty fun and came out with some accidentally cool stuff but once you hit the svg button just like the shapes are wacky the lines are imprecise there's a lot of points that are on there that don't need to be frankly it's not that different from auto vectorizing in illustrator Mm -hmm. where you can't just push the button like you have to you can push the button and then you can try to fix everything that it did wrong but usually it's going to be easier to just draw over do it the right way the first time yeah yes that's what i figured because any for example like the ai tools and adobe platform the one that I will attest that actually is reasonably good is the object find. You want to do a quick select on like you have a background, you want to knock out some, do a mask on a subject, mm. for example. It does about 80% of the work. You got to go in there and do the precision work, but broad strokes, it actually is quite good. It sounds like it's similar in energy here. Like it can get you going pretty good, but then if you want to actually get this professional execution out of it, you're going to have to probably go in and do the work yourself eventually. Right. And I will say the whole engineering a prompt thing is still difficult work, which we have already talked about in the four episodes we've been doing. I know it's been like a common theme of this season, basically. The new spellcaster. That's basically what we need. You need an AI spellcaster. (laughs) Which my first attempt before trying to play with icons and stuff, I recently was tasked with making a logo for my sister's new company idea. And she had a very specific idea of what she wanted, what objects to be in it. And so I thought, oh, that'll be a great prompt because it's so specific. It's these two sets of hands surrounding like a potted plant from an overhead view. Like it was easy to be specific based on her inspiration of what she wanted. And I tried maybe 12 times 
and every one of them just came out as like weird mangled lines and i was like this is harder than i thought fascinating so micah shall we move on to the next article sure uh, yeah keeping it light today it's fun light and breezy now I think except I'm for this next article which is not light i was gonna say i was actually gonna ask we could skip it just because it's a little heavy and talk about the other one but you know what here we'll jump into it designing surveyor this was basically a commentary reflection by not directly by tobias fair jones but it was written by doug wilson of the lionite documentary on the development of the surveyor series uh, which is a typeface family developed by in part by Tobias, that because of the acquisition of Hepler and Co. has been now part of the monotype collection. And yeah, it's a very systematic walkthrough of the origin and process of the typeface surveyor. Michael, what are your thoughts? I loved how detailed it was. I loved all of the beautiful inspiration that they shared. Because Surveyor, the name is referencing the fact that their inspiration was from beautiful old vintage maps. And I love a beautiful old vintage map. Who doesn't love it's, Right? It's, they're beautiful. And so it was really fun to see all of that. It was written like a, I don't know, like a documentary. Like I was going to say, like a documentary. Yeah. <laughs> right? Which, until you said it just now, I didn't realize that Doug Wilson was the linotype filmmaker so that kind of makes sense and it's fairly dense and not like reading but fun in that nerdy kind of way right if you really want to understand the backstory of this you can get a lot of detail here you want to understand how deep of a nerd type designers are go read this right. article you'll find right. out real quick because i'm sitting here going oh yeah totally i get you right That's exactly the kind of problem you're gonna to have to deal with it as a type designer so if you like that level if you read this and go yes i want to think this deeply about a bunch of letters <laughs> then you have a career in type design. That is your vocation. Go do it. If you're like, wow, this is a degree of OCD that I am not prepared for, then move all your life. <laughs> Enjoy type. I, I, mean, don't I don't know. It. I think there's probably a place for people who are not this intense about it. But this is coming from one of the best in are, the industry. Yeah, exactly. Like top tier in the industry. So this is a good example of what the top players are thinking about and how detailed they're thinking about it. Yeah. Yeah. Now, and by the way, for those who do want to go in, who are curious about this level of thought process, this is actually a lot of how inspirations influence type design. Even the process of working with clients is actually exposed a little bit in this article. So the context is Martha Stewart Living, which for about, I think in the early 2000s, especially 1990s, 2000, for at the time period, I think it was late 90s. I think they, they were like said late 90s. Yeah. Yeah, I thought so. Martha Stewart Living was basically like the hotbed of great typography. And it was partly... Really? Yeah, it was actually. Every type was there, as demonstrated by the Tobias working on it. Also, I know colleagues who worked in their typesetting department. But with that said, what's interesting is, one was the kind of economic prosperity of publishing back then. Also, that's true historically. Publishing actually was a big cash cow for type design back in the 1990s. There was just a lot of subscriptions, lots of revenue. It was actually a lot of abundance. Actually, what's interesting, he said, a lot of times they were copying each other. So they were fighting for audience. And they actually needed some element of distinction that cannot be easily copied. And a proprietary typeface was the strategy. So I like that kind of setup for the business case for type inside this documentary series, essay series. Even the notice of like how keywords or mood board ideas get expressed in working with clients, the idea of this had to be handmade, precious, and precise. How that gets interpreted in type, it's very fascinating because that can be interpreted so many different ways. 
And it actually yeah. was interesting to know that was the keywords they were thinking about. Even Tobias said actually in the article, like, he really struggled with this to the point where he couldn't even really feel confident giving this to other designers to work with and his team because he didn't even really know what he was doing with it. <laughs> it was like, you actually said, this is one of those things where like, I'll know when I see it. That is not a good way to work with your colleagues in a design project in yeah, general. So. <laughs> so I'm very empathetic to, I think, the sincerity of the design process. And it talks about how... The discussion of looking at handwriting, basically how these engravers made the letters, right? The fins of the hairlines were made from the stroke unit, and then they were filled in at the fix. Mm -hmm. So the mode of construction was informing the design decisions of the font, as well as the idea of no straight lines, which is very typical for a high contrast modern kind of design, which is, this is based on. But the fact that there's soft, there's bracketing of irregular amounts on most of the stems. And even the kind of bowing in the serifs themselves, literally that kind of attention of detail to that degree <laughs> to create the impression was, again, if you were all about this going, yes, I want this, <laughs> then you got, this is your calling. But there wasn't a really interesting point in that section because I was intrigued by the subheadline of no straight lines allowed. And I was like, oh, why? And literally they jump right into it and they're like, it's not something that the human hand does very well. Like humans are imperfect. This source material was imperfect. Maybe from a distance, it might look as perfect as if it was a digital typesetting. But once you get into the real detail of actually looking at how they drew these letters, it was done by a human. And so it's imperfect. They wanted to replicate that. Yes. Which is fascinating. It is. One last note that was really interesting was I didn't know this, that apparently this was part of a type series that I didn't know the relationship of Archer. So Archer is another typeface that was designed. It was designed at the same time, apparently, but as the body copy. So that's interesting because this is one of those things like when you pair typefaces, which one you should pair with what? The mind of the designer who made the font is telling you basically Surveyor and Archer were meant to work together as a type family, which makes sense. One's a slab serif and one's a modern high contrast. So that makes perfect sense. Which if you find that piece in this essay, there's a link where it says Archer that links to a similar essay about designing Archer, which is equally detailed, influenced by typewriter, which is interesting to me. So if you really like this article, you'll probably find that one interesting. Go too. get more. Go dig in more. The great chasm, abyss of type designers, how we think. Yes. And isn't it cool that they're putting a lot of effort into writing these very detailed, well-written articles as like a historic preservation Mm -hmm. Okay, this font is going into monotype. We don't really know what's going to happen with it. So let's document what we were doing with it. That's yeah. cool. Paying honoring to it. Yeah. It's like memorial. <laughs> I guess I'm <laughs> dead, right? Do fonts die? Who knows? Yeah. <laughs> I want a good debate. All right. Next article is this is a very fun one for reasons we'll probably go into. So from Pit My Type, Oliver wrote this basically as an article on chat GPT UI font fail to summarize it. it basically people are going to chat GPT to ask, Hey, what's the best font to use for UI? Oliver went in, did that. And he demonstrated on the list was five fonts. One of them was quicksand. And then the article lists out why quicksand is not an appropriate right. font for UI. Micah, Which I'm grinning font? because you worked on quicksand. I know. It's just, I the, the irony and hilarity of it does not escape me. I know. It's very fun. But I also thought you would appreciate it because all of the points that he makes are true yeah, and valid. good points. 
And Oliver, we love Oliver here. He did a workshop with us. He has really good insight. And you always talk about in your teaching, you try to help students practice the art of discernment, right? And this is, I feel exactly that. It's teaching how to look at a typeface and decide not whether it is good or bad, but what it is good for. Mm -hmm. Yep, that's uh, what exactly not to use it. Right? That's why exactly, even though I, we're both smiling, because it's oh, this is funny. The times I worked on being smacked on, but it's totally appropriate because yeah, quicksand isn't really made for the purposes of a UI, especially as Oliver's listing it out. It's too light, it takes too much space, it's too striking, it's too geometric, and the shape is too similar. Yeah, all valid points. As Oliver said, it's great for a headline, perfectly appropriate for those kind of circumstances. Right. So yeah, I think this was a very useful article to just some. And actually, the big takeaway is don't let AI tell you what to think. Use your own brain. That's basically <laughs> try to summarize the point. I would say that it's also funny because AI has come up so much already in the last few weeks of us chatting. AI is permeating design. Right? Has it been in every and article? Every single like email <laughs> this much. month, this season has been AI based. Cer- yeah, certainly every newsletter. There's at least something. And I feel like last year we were talking about how it's starting to come into play. And now it's, oh, it is in play. And this is a really funny example to me, too, because as a developer, like I have been playing with AI to keep up to speed. And all of the AI models that exist, especially this most popular one with ChatGPT, it'll just lie. It'll lie to you. It'll very confidently tell you false information. Lying? That's a bit. I, would you not say it makes an educated guess of the most probable likelihood? Not always. Sometimes it makes <laughs> shit up. There was a really funny Twitter thread of somebody going to all of the different AI platforms and, and saying, where are the N's in the word mayonnaise? And every one of them answered, and every one of them answered wrong and very confidently. Nice. <laughs> they were like, there are no letter N's in the word mayonnaise. Or like, the second letter of the word and the sixth letter of the word, or like the thirteenth letter of the word, and you're like, wait, that's not. There aren't that many letters. Hold on. But Micah, a, a lie would require you to know the truth, but then you're purposely saying the contrary to it. Can an AI know that? I don't. That's oh, that's a philosophical discussion, isn't it? <laughs> Interesting point. I'm not sure. I was right, being cute. It's <laughs> all right. All right. So moving on to our last article of this week is Call to Inspiration from Digital Purple Hat. It is a collection of... I didn't realize it was from Digital Purple Hat. I'm assuming that because I I investigated and they dressed themselves as that in the About page. So I'm going to identify them as that for now. That's funny. Yes. That's a collection of UX, UI components. Micah, what are your thoughts? I actually found this one and I personally was like, oh, I'm going to bookmark this for my own use later. It's just like a... Fairly useful tool. It's a mishmash. Let me describe it. When you first land on the page, there's, I don't know, 30-something categories of different UI components. Not necessarily like pages, but components that you can use as inspiration. And when you click on one, it is just a gallery wall of, here, we found some like this. So there's things like login forms and pricing and carousels and (laughs) empty states, which I appreciate. I find it very useful to have examples. I've been working on some new sections for the league site, and 
I always jump between designer and developer brain. And developer brain, there's a lot of creativity involved in it, but it's mostly fairly straightforward. Oh, I have to do this in order to get to step B and then step C. Oh, that didn't work. I got to find a workaround to get to step E. Whereas design is what do I want it to feel like? And what do I want you to feel as you're looking at it? And so this isn't a big surprise, but I'm working on the gallery page for all of the links that we have ever shared so that you can browse and search and find interesting inspiration similar to this site, right? And it is always surprising to me to be like, I don't know how I should design this card for a link. We've been working on maybe redesigning the email for the newsletter. And what information do I want to show and why? And then that's the baseline, right? Oh, I'm going to show where it came from, maybe when we posted it, what category is this a font or like a tutorial or what? And then it's just infinite amounts of, should I put it in the top left? Should I put it on the bottom right? Why? And what feeling does that give me as I'm designing it? And so given that context, I appreciate finding these gallery inspiration type things because it's showing you 70 different ways that other people have done it. And you might be like, oh, I like this piece of how they did it in number four. And, oh, but I also like this piece from number seven. And you can mishmash it because you have a lot of inspiration in one place in front of you. I would These kind of web pages are worth their weight in gold from an education point of view. Because as an educator, I absolutely would go to sites like this to pull up references. If I had to teach class on UX, UI, and components. And I'm glad I wrote my note. I was like, are these components? I'm glad you said you prefer my instinct. What kind of objects they are or components. And the idea is that when you're looking at a login or carousel notifications, like how how did a bunch of people do it before? You have to look at historical examples or reference points. And then you have to look at the pattern. What's similar? What's different? And why? So beyond even just the feels, what is the things that make it, air quotes, the essence of a notification or a carousel? Draw those out. You need exemplars. You need samples to draw from. It just makes things way more concrete. So versus if you ask to explain verbally what a login page is, no one's going to get it. You could just show, or you could just show them this, show them three examples from this. You go, oh, and you just get it. At least the rough outline of it, let alone all the details you go into it. So yeah, I think this is a great resource. Digital Purple Hat. If that's who you are, thank you for your service. Did great. Micah, we're wrap it up. Easy breezy. We're done. Man, I'm proud week. of us. We did good time. We did this pretty good. I hope everybody you enjoyed this week's newsletter. Check it out. Sign up if you haven't done so yet. And don't forget that there is a members one. There's links that are not publicly stated that you might want to check out <laughs> if you sign up for the mailing list of the league. Excellent. Thank you, Thomas, for that plug. And as always, if you found any interesting stuff, send us an email or tweet or something, and you might be able to include it in a future newsletter. So thanks for tuning in, everybody. See you next week. Do-do-do-do. Do-do-do-do. Do-do-do-do.